Good morning. So it feels like a while since I've had the chance to do this. In fact, I figured I, I might be best off uh, introducing myself in case some of you are not sure uh, who I am. Uh, it's, I think I've not stood at the front here since pre-COVID days, so you may have seen me on the screen uh, online. But um, it's wonderful to have the chance. I thank you for the invitation, Steve, to, to speak this morning. Uh, Mark Scanlon, I've been part of the church here uh, with my wife, Linda, uh, for over 20 years. We've got uh, two kids, Caleb and Faith. Uh, Caleb is 15, Faith coming up for 13. Um, I was on the staff team here for a number of years, uh, heading up the youth ministry, on the eldership for, uh, for a few years as well. Uh, currently, I work at a Church of England theological college in London, St. Melitus College. Uh, been there for six and a half, coming up for seven years, where I, I teach on a number of programs, uh, focusing mainly on youth ministry and mission and, and things like that. But it feels like a while since I've done this kind of teaching, rather than that kind of teaching. In fact, I had to really show some self-discipline preparing, or else you're going to end up with an essay question at the end of this. Um, but thankfully, you'll be pleased to know I managed to uh, hold myself back from that. But I'm looking forward to unpacking uh, some, uh, some thoughts uh, about what it means to view the cross uh, through the lens of the Passover, um, but also have a little apprehension at the sort of responsibility of doing that. So let me pray. Uh, and I'm going to pray in the words of Psalm 19, uh, verse 14. Heavenly Father, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Holy Spirit, may you bring understanding and encouragement through my words this morning. Filter out anything I've prepared to say or that I do say that is uh, unhelpful. And uh, may what we look at this morning build us up and encourage us and point us increasingly to you. Amen. Great. So as you know, we're at the sort of early stages of this series through till Easter called The Long Road to the Cross. And it's, it's fantastic, isn't it, to have a number of weeks to think about and reflect on this central aspect of our faith as we build up towards Easter in a few months' time. And so we're going to look at that today, as you would have known from the reading and heard already, through the lens of the Passover story in Exodus and there's some really interesting things to unpack, and it feels like we're only just going to be able to sort of scratch the surface. But I hope that the way in which we're going to look at it will give us a, a perspective on the cross that I wonder whether we sometimes uh, sort of leave a little bit on the, on the margins. And I want to begin with these reflections, not actually back in that story of Passover, but at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. With John the Baptist, in the beginning of John's telling of the gospel story in chapter 1, John the Baptist, who has gathered a crowd uh, of people around him, people are flocking out to see him in the desert around the River Jordan. He's baptizing them, uh, he is teaching them, he's calling people to repentance. And one day, John reports uh, an incident where, uh, where Jesus is coming uh, as part of the crowd. And John the Baptist, this relative of Jesus, looks at him and declares to the crowd, pointing him out, really sort of doing precisely the job that John the Baptist was called to do, pointing people ultimately towards Jesus. And he points Jesus out and he says these words, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is a statement that would have conjured all sorts of ideas, of images, of hopes, 
of expectations, of theology uh, and intrigue for those first century Jews who would flock to hear and be baptised by John uh, at the River Jordan. And it may well be a phrase that does the same for many of us as we think about uh, Jesus being the Lamb of God, particularly perhaps those of us who have uh, been doing this kind of church thing uh, and, uh, and following Jesus for a number of years, we'll have a sense as to what we, we think we mean when we hear this phrase, uh, Jesus as the Lamb of God. It will be quite familiar to us. For those first century Jews, these words, though, would have taken them Right back to that story that Martin has read for us, that story of the Passover, of the slaughtering of the lambs uh, at that, in that moment and using the blood of those lambs to uh, so that death passed over. And that moment really in the heart of that being this wonderful victory of God, this foundational story for the Jewish people in which God leads them out of slavery, out from under the oppression uh, of Egypt and into freedom. And my question is whether we quite conjure those same images and ideas. It might bring to mind the Passover, this statement or this this moment of, of John the Baptist looking out and pointing to Jesus and saying, Jesus, the Lamb of God. But I wonder if we conjure those images in quite the same way. It's possible sometimes for something to be so familiar to us that we are mistaken about it without quite realizing it. Or we perhaps don't see some aspects of it or some perspectives because it has become so familiar to us. Uh, Last year, uh, I finished uh, reading uh, all the Sherlock Holmes stories. I'd I'd got them as a box set for Christmas a couple of years before and I gradually worked my way through them. Sherlock Holmes has a, uh, is known perhaps for a catchphrase that's up on the screen there, elementary, my dear Watson. Now, some of you may know this, but how many times do you think that phrase appears in the Sherlock Holmes novels? None. none. Absolutely none. It's an iconic phrase that is connected to Sherlock Holmes, and he never says it once. It's really strange how something can become so embedded in our consciousness and we don't necessarily realize uh, to what extent it resembles reality or not. And the Sherlock Holmes example is a good one as well, because uh, he lived in, the, sort of in his fictional life. He lived at, at the address that many of you will know, 221B Baker Street. Uh, people still write letters to Sherlock Holmes at 221B Baker Street. It's crazy. He's a fictional character. So it's possible for us to be so familiar with something that we don't actually question whether we remember it or recall it or reflect on it correctly. So what image does it conjure for us when we hear that phrase, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? My suggestion, because this is what comes to mind for me often, is that that quite often we we think about uh, it has something to do with what theologians would call penal substitution. The idea of a sacrificial lamb, a lamb being sacrificed in order that the the, the punishment for sin that could be or should be on us is instead uh, taken by the lamb in its death. And so that my sin and my guilt uh, is dealt with in the sacrifice of the lamb. But when... John points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those first century Jewish listeners, they'll have conjured the picture of the Passover, the foundational story that gave identity to the Jewish people. 
And what the Passover story does is actually gives us quite a different take on what it is to see Jesus as the Lamb of God. Because the lambs that were sacrificed at Passover were not being sacrificed so that the, the, the guilt of the sin of the Jewish people was dealt with, but so that the Jewish people could be led out from under the oppression of slavery into freedom. It's much more in that foundational Passover story about freedom from oppression than it is about having our individual sin dealt with. Now, that's not to say that there's no truth uh, in the, the, the penal substitution idea of the cross. There absolutely is. But the Passover gives us a different perspective. And I think it's so important. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit this morning. What does it mean to see Jesus' death on the cross, to be as much about freedom from oppression as it is about uh, our, our sin being forgiven. Because the Passover gives us a, a lens and a way into thinking about Jesus on the cross in that way. And to begin to think about that, I want to take us uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Last July, I had the privilege of traveling to Atlanta for a week. It was for a conference uh, of an organization, a network that I'm part of, called the ISYM, the International Association for the Study of Youth Ministry. It is quite a mouthful, but it is a wonderful network to be part of. And it was uh, their first uh, sort of in-person conference since pre-COVID, and it was my first trip out of the country since before COVID. And it was so exciting to be able to do that. And I sort of felt like the kid in the candy store when I arrived at the airport. And it was like, I can remember the excitement of the first time as a kid that I got on the plane. Uh, and it felt like that again last year, that after so many restrictions, the joy of, of travel and the excitement and the adventure of it. And uh, I managed to somehow be the first person onto the plane when they started boarding, which was incredible. And I walked onto this, 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 this kind of transatlantic plane that was so much bigger than I seemed to remember them in the past. And I kind of stood there with these like kind of rabbit in the headlights. Um, and uh, I, uh, Faith had asked me to take a photo of, of the plane and various other things. And so the, uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the, the stewards took my, took my phone and took a picture of, of me in the plane. It was just me with this sort of vast uh, row of seats and things like that. It was really exciting. I, I loved just being a, you know, sitting there and having people bring me food and drink and watching three movies across the nine-hour flight. It was so exciting. It got slightly less exciting when I landed. In, uh, first, I was changing planes in, in Chicago and had to go through passport control and immigration there. And there was a slightly weird moment, where, well, mo moment, it was about half an hour or so, where a rather brusque American official walked off with my passport and told me to wait in a side room because there was something wrong, without telling me what it was. And we were going to come back to that uh, a little bit later. However, I got through, they let me in, and thankfully let me back out again afterwards as well. Um, and we had a wonderful week in Atlanta. But the best bit of uh, actually wasn't the conference itself. It was that a few of us uh, delegates to the conference had arrived uh, a few days early, and on the Sunday, the day before the conference began on the Monday, uh, we spent a day sort of immersing ourselves in the history of Atlanta, and particularly the history and work of the US civil rights movement uh, under the leadership of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. We visited Martin Luther King's childhood home, 
Centre for Civil Rights, we went to the uh, morning service at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was the church where, that Martin Luther King Sr. had been minister of for so many years and Martin Luther King Jr. had been associate minister of. Uh, the current minister there is the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, who is also uh, a, a member of the House of Representatives uh, representing uh, the, the, the uh, city of Atlanta, or the state of Georgia. What was fascinating about sitting in that church and, uh, and hearing the preaching and, and, and getting a sense of, of the culture was that civil rights was still a live issue for that congregation. We were there not long after the, uh, the, the, um, in the American uh, sort of Supreme Court had overturned the Roe versus Wade abortion rights ruling. Uh, and they referred to that in, in the preaching and during the service. And what was fascinating was putting aside any of the, the, the debates or rights and wrongs uh, over abortion was that for this congregation, who are so steeped in the history of civil rights, what was at stake actually was a, an issue of rights. And the fear that if the Supreme Court could start overturning uh, decisions that had seemed set in stone and constitutional, then there were civil rights uh, issues that could also be overturned using the same legal arguments. We were struck by the, uh, the, the embedded injustice that the civil rights movement had been uh, trying to unpick and fighting against. Uh, there's a, a film that's out at the moment called Till. I don't know if anyone's had the chance to see it. It tells the story of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was murdered for whistling at a white female shop owner in Mississippi in 1955. And it tells the story of how the murderers, uh, white men, though known, walked free at trial, uh, a trial held with an all-white male jury. And to be there in Atlanta and, and to sort of steep, steep ourselves for a day in the story of the civil rights movement was incredible. And what stood out really for me was the response of the civil rights movement led by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. The bravery, the persistence, the subversive power of the movement expressed in the principles of non-violence. And I wonder, Ian, if we could go back to maybe to the, the previous slide. I think it was the previous slide. Yeah, there we go. That when we were there opposite the, the church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, is the Martin Luther King Center, and uh, there's a memorial uh, area for Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And, and uh, as part of that memorial area, there are these, uh, there's this wall where carved into the wall are what, what were the principles of nonviolence uh, under which he led the, the civil rights movement, uh, and, uh, and also some words of his wife, Coretta Scott King. And I was so struck by the way in which the, the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was led with these principles of nonviolence, that this was not a battle going to be won by fighting fire with fire, but undermining fire or putting out fire with humility. And as we can see in one of the, the quotes on the screen there, principle six of nonviolence said, nonviolence is the most powerful force for contracting hatred. Nonviolence believes that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. The photo there may be one that is familiar uh, to many of you. It's a photo of a 15-year-old girl, Elizabeth Ann Eckford, 
who in a different uh, part of the southern states, in, in Arkansas, in Little Rock, was one of uh, the first nine black students to attend classes at a previously all-white school. If you look at the photo in the background, you can see both armed guards and also the, the, a, a sense of the vitriol and the hatred being uh, poured towards her from those uh, white students in the background who are shouting and heckling as she goes forward. And, and so ultimately, this was a, a battle about justice, about freedom and fairness for those denied uh, both by legal, societal, cultural, institutional oppression and sin. It, it turns out, perhaps, that the American dream uh, for some actually is built on the back of injustice and uh, oppression for others. And to visit that place, that church, the Martin Luther King Memorial and Centre, to visit the National Centre for Civil and Human Rights that's in the city was perhaps to be overwhelmed by some of the dehumanising nature of oppression and injustice. And it was to be reminded that if there is truth in the gospel, if there is power in the cross of Christ, then it has to respond to this, this institutional uh, oppression and injustice, as well as to my individual personal sin and guilt. And there seems to be a heartbreaking human tendency, doesn't there, that rears its head time and time again through history across cultures and continents to use power to restrict, demean, and dehumanize those that are different or that we perceive as a threat. One of Martin Luther King's most famous phrases is pertinent here, and this is the, the next slide. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I want to suggest that this is not necessarily, uh, this, is not tr this is true not necessarily because it is self-evident, but it's true because it's a statement of hopeful, hopeful defiance that comes from a place of faith in the cross of Christ and the work of Jesus on the cross and the truth of the gospel. That the cross of Jesus viewed through the lens of Passover and Exodus demonstrates it to be true. And so we're going to start to work our way back towards that story of the Passover, but with this lens of, of the, 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 you know, the tendency of kind of human cultures and systems and institutions to often uh, tend towards injustice and oppression and the dehumanizing nature of that. But before we get to the Passover, I want to remind us uh, of something that was said by another teenage girl, not the one we've just seen in the picture, but the one whose story we remembered just a few weeks or a month or so ago at Christmas. The teenage girl Mary, carrying uh, the, 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 the baby Jesus in her womb. In the Anglican liturgy that's said in most Church of England churches up and down the country, uh, a section of the Christmas story is repeated and recalled week by week. It's called the Magnificat. It's Mary's song from Luke chapter 1, a prophetic song about the work of God that is beginning to take shape in her womb. And right in the middle of this song, we read these words. And it's a sort of a prophetic, hopeful uh, framing of what the baby inside Mary's womb is going to be about. And we see that it talks about the way that God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. That there is something about the work of Jesus that Mary foresees and recalls as being about this work of God, not just in individuals, but to bring down rulers from their thrones. It's a phrase that both looks back and forward, looks back to where God has done this before and forward to where God is doing this again in a new way through the child Mary is carrying. 
that rulers will be brought down from their thrones, not through violence that will breed more violence or political power and all the compromises and challenges this brings, but first through the quiet obedience of an unwed teenage girl from a backwater village, the epitome of powerlessness. And do you know what else is the epitome of powerlessness? A newborn lamb. A newborn lamb. Taken on that first Passover night by the families of the Jewish people and killed. And Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the blood of the lambs of Passover brought about the great defeat and humiliation of the Egyptian empire because the Passover happens not just to save individuals from sin but to rescue a people oppressed and dehumanized by the injustice of slavery. And we see this again and again and again through human history. There's a book that I find really helpful when thinking about this. It's got a slightly provocative title called Jesus Wants to Save Christians. Uh, and there's going to be a, 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 a section of a quote from it on the screen on the next slide. And in this book, they talk about uh, Egypt almost as a, as a metaphor or a kind of a, an archetype for this human tendency uh, to oppress. And uh, the, the writers say this, Egypt is what happens when sin builds up ahead of steam. Egypt is what happens when sin becomes structured and embedded in society. Egypt shows us how easily human nature bends towards using power to preserve privilege at the expense of the weak. Exodus is about a people, a tribe, a nation being rescued from slavery. It's about liberation from occupation. It's about the insurgent power of redemption from empire. And we see Egypt rearing its head again and again, or the example of Egypt rearing its head again and again as people seek to use power to preserve privilege and their people at the expense of those they consider weaker. Just in recent decades and centuries, we could name you know, the racism countered by the US civil rights movement. That is an example of Egypt. The horrors of Nazi Germany is an example of Egypt. The Rwandan genocide, Egypt. Atrocities of colonialism, Egypt. Pol Pot in Cambodia, Egypt. You know, social media influencers like, influences like Andrew Tate trafficking teenage girls for sex, Egypt. We might say the continued use of fossil fuels by large countries that then mean countries and people on the other side of the world with less power find that their crops fail and their, uh, you know, their cities are flooded. An example, perhaps, of Egypt. The cross seen through the lens of Passover is about people being rescued from the sin of empire, of slavery. Of, it's about liberation. It's about the insurgent power of redemption from empire, from those who use power to push others down and dehumanize them. So we want to look briefly at the story itself. And I want to just kind of highlight really three things uh, from uh, the, the, the passage that Martin read for us that help us think about uh, a bit more detail this aspect uh, of the story. And there's a section from the passage uh, on... Uh, it should come up on the screen... Uh, I think that, that slide has come up in a minute. There we go. Thanks, thanks, Ian. So three things, or maybe three and a half, because I'm going to start at the beginning of the passage before we get to, to this section. Because one of the things I really like about this 
is right at the beginning of the passage that Martin read. We get uh, God saying to Moses and Aaron with the instructions of of what they, they need to do. He starts off by saying, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. There's a sense here in which with the Passover, there is a totally new start. It's not just a little bit of a shift. There is a totally new beginning for this people. This people that have become dehumanized by the, uh, the, the slavery and oppression they're under. This is a totally new start. But three things that I want to draw out, two of which I think are in that, that section of the passage uh, on the screen there. The first one, which I, I, I think is really important, in, in verse 12 where God says he'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. We haven't got time to sort of dig into this, but if you look at the the details of the... the, Because obviously the Passover is coming at the end of a process uh, of, of God using Moses to plead for the freedom of the people of Israel from the slavery that they're under, and from time and time again, uh, God bringing a plague uh, to, to pass judgment on the people of Egypt, uh, and then that not quite being enough to persuade Pharaoh to let the, 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 the people of Israel go. Uh, and if you look into the details of it, each of the plagues building up to, to the Passover can be seen as a particular judgment against one of uh, the, the gods of Egypt, one of their sort of array of gods that they worshipped. Uh, for example, a plague of darkness as a judgment against uh, the god of the sun that they would worship. And so we get to this, this final judgment, uh, this final moment where, where God is going to bring his people out. It comes as a culmination of saying, actually, this is now judgment against all of the gods of Egypt, all of the supposed power that Egypt has. You are going to be brought out from under that. You know, Egypt would have believed that they had a divine right to be the oppressor, that they had a divine right to treat the people of Israel that way, that it was uh, given to them by their gods. And Passover is a culmination of judgment on on all of the gods uh, of Egypt. The second thing that I want to to highlight from this story is that this uh, this final judgment falls particularly on the firstborn of Egypt. It can sound particularly harsh, It's one of these passages in the Old Testament that is difficult to get our heads around at times, I think. But I want to suggest that this, in some ways, strikes right to the heart of how power and empire uh, perpetuates itself. It gets passed on. The firstborn. How how does privilege and power get passed on among kind of ruling classes? It gets passed on through the firstborn, those who inherit the privilege of power, those who are like us that we want to pass things on to. You know, in a totally different context, we saw this just a few months ago, didn't we, in in our own country and culture, and I'm absolutely in no way trying to suggest that there's anything about Queen Elizabeth II that is like Egypt in Exodus. But there was no debate about who was going to be the next monarch, It was clear, the firstborn, it gets passed on. We didn't have a discussion, we didn't have a national debate. Who do we want to have as king? What do you reckon? Shall we have, uh, I I was going to come up with silly examples, I probably won't do that, that would probably get me into a dangerous place. But you know, there, there was no debate because things get passed on through the firstborn. So the judgment on the firstborn is saying the perpetuation of oppression stops now. It stops now. You cannot pass it on. It is God saying, there will be no means by which you pass on the power by which you have oppressed these people. 
God's judgment falls on the means by which power and privilege are perpetuated. And looking from here towards the cross, we think about how generations later, centuries later, another firstborn son, the firstborn son of Mary, who was also known as the Son of God, comes and subverts the power of empire by choosing not to hold on to that privilege and power that he had by right of being the Son of God. The Apostle Paul, in writing the church in the Philippians, puts it in in words that will be familiar to many of us, but are yet so powerful, that we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. God's judgment falls on the means by which power and oppression perpetuated themselves. Centuries later, Jesus comes and chooses to let go of the power and privilege that he had by rights. And this points us to the Lamb. This points us to the Lamb. Weak, helpless, powerless, a newborn Lamb. Ultimately killed, slaughtered by, uh, by the, the, each Jewish family. But this Lamb that is weak, that is powerless, that is helpless, becomes the means by which God protects, God releases and God brings life to his people. It resonates with more words of the Apostle Paul writing to the early church in Corinth where he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. The power of the Lamb at Passover is that it seemingly has no power but yet undermines the power of empire. The power of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is that it seems like he has succumbed to all of the powers that that, uh, he, you know, that, that, that threw everything at him. Religious power and authority, political power and authority. And he is on the cross, bringing life through death. Perhaps not just in terms of life after death, but life instead of death. Life instead of death. And so in the Passover, the victory of the Lamb over empire uh, is fulfilled. And in the ongoing celebration of the Passover, the Jewish people uh, celebrated this and reenacted it time and time again. Uh, I have a colleague at college who has a confusingly almost identical name to mine. He's called Mark Scalata instead of Mark Scanlon. It causes much confusion. He's an Old Testament scholar and and an incredibly smart guy. Uh, He he will translate from the original ancient Hebrew in the Old Testament. Uh, And so you can see the the, the difficulty that comes when we get confused uh, because there's no way that I can do that. Um, But he's written a a book uh, about uh, the, the story of Exodus. And he says, from that moment in Egypt, every generation of Israelites would recall the experience of salvation, freedom, and the release from bondage in the Passover meal. It was not simply a remembrance of past events, it was a recalling a moment in time that became an ever-present reality for each generation that looked forward to a future hope of freedom. And now this is what we do each time we celebrate communion. We recall a moment in time where Jesus absorbed uh, 
you know, Jesus absorbed all the, the evil and oppression that this world could throw at him. Political and religious and triumphed over it as the Lamb of God. It is an ever-present reality and a future hope of freedom. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And we know it because Jesus has said on the cross, and he says again and again as he uh, hangs on the cross as the Lamb of God, three words, it is finished. As I begin to come into to land, I want to just reflect uh, just for a couple of moments on some further words of, of the Apostle Paul writing to one of the early churches, this time in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15, where he talks of Jesus having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The power of empire is shown up for what it is when the subversive power of the Lamb claims victory. Pharaoh was made to look powerless and the Israelites, as the Israelites walk out of Egypt. So much so that later on in the story, he chases them. He tries to stop them because he realizes actually what a public spectacle has been made of him. Jesus on the cross is absorbing all the powers of evil, every act of hatred and oppression and injustice and dehumanization. And he refuses to fight back on evil's terms. And they are shown up for what they are. The way to death, not life. They are disarmed. And so that as just as a final kind of thought, as I was preparing for today, I was, I was struck by some words that uh, some of the people that gathered around John the Baptist sort of threw at him when he was preaching, this time in Luke's Gospel, where they say to him, what then should we do? What then should we do? And I just want to briefly return to Atlanta, uh, to the, well, actually to Chicago, to the airport, where I'd gone up to passport control to have my passport stamped and waved through to pick up my connecting plane. And instead, a quite large man in a uniform with a gun at his belt walks away with my passport, leads me into another room and says, wait there, there's a problem. No explanation, and I sit in this room, quite an intimidating room away from the main bit of the, uh, of the airport building. And I think, wow, I have no power in this situation. I have no passport. I have no idea what is going on. And just for a moment, I got a glimpse of what it might feel like in a very surface level kind of way to be powerless under the power of sort of institution. And I realized how rarely I feel like that. It was a situation that made me realize something of my own privilege. And so perhaps, what then should we do? Well, one area would be for us to recognize in what ways do we walk and live with privilege? And how do we use that privilege? How can we use that privilege, perhaps, to build others up, to bring others uh, with us, to amplify voices? That was a challenge, maybe particularly for me, uh, as I reflected on this. But I also think, what then should we do? We need to be people of hope. We need to be people of hope because we know, to use these words one more time, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice because the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, because Jesus on the cross says it is finished. And hope is not just a theoretical idea, but hope is a verb. It is something that we live. 
So how do we live the hope of the cross that's seen through the lens of the Passover says God is on the side of the oppressed, on the side of those dehumanized by injustice. And he is working for their freedom. Because ultimately, thanks to the cross, all injustice, all oppression, all use of power to dehumanize is finished. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you do not do as the world does. That you chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that on the cross you dealt with all that evil has to offer. You took it all on yourself and we're able to declare, it is finished. And we are so grateful for that. And thank you for the hope that that gives, that all will be well, and that you will make all things new. Amen. Amen.